Well, I really liked the name of the company, Business Analysts. Like the company's just called Business Analysts. <laughs> it's so blunt, isn't it? Welcome to the Impact Podcast, where we explore how to build valuable businesses that make a positive impact. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Schrader, a veteran in the field of product management and an expert in business strategy. Now, Dan and I have collaborated on several projects over the years, and it's always a learning experience. In fact, even while I was editing this episode, I was still making notes of things I wanted to try in my own business. Now, in this episode, we cover a lot. We delve into the importance of a good company name, insights into the decision-making process in product management, what early clients can mean for the direction of your business, and the immense value of strategic planning. We also explore the concept of perpetual value creation and how powerful referrals can be in driving business growth. So, before we start, a little context. Alongside Dan's consulting practice, he has developed an app called SliceGoal. It's great, you should check it out. But SliceGoal used to be called Cavestep, and we started by discussing why he had decided to change the name and how important or not so important it can be to have a great product name. I hope you enjoy it. I'm probably going to change the name to Slice Goal. I think it's been hard because I really got attached to the idea of Cave Step as a concept. Like when I was like, oh yeah, it means this. But then the more I tried to explain it and for people to know or hear the name, I was like, oh, okay, shit. That's actually hard to articulate it. Like phonetically, Mm. people are like, what? Yeah. Because it's not two words you normally put together as well. So I think... It, I, don't, I think with names, it's interesting because it doesn't necessarily need to mean anything. Mm-hmm. And I think if you talk to somebody who's in marketing, this is what they would say is it really doesn't matter. You just start marketing, you start pushing stuff out and you are consistent and you're persistent and mm-hmm. you just keep going. And at some point it's going to start sticking and you're going to start getting traction. I think names are an interesting thing in a sense because I think I totally agree with you in that it doesn't matter, but it kind of matters. Yeah. (laughs) And I've often thought that the idea that you just pick a name and then advertise it and it'll stick is true, Mm -hmm. but it can also, unless you've got a ton of cash, kind of mean that you're running in sand. Whereas if you Mm -hmm. do pick a very good name, it's easier. Yeah. People go, ah. I get it, or they like it, or there is some magic in a name. Totally. But then, completely, you can overthink it, or you can, like you can spend too long. Yeah. Yeah, like it, in so many other ways, it doesn't matter. For sure. I think it's interesting, too, because for to have confidence in picking a name, or to have confidence in how much time you should spend on a name, mm. I should probably say better. Yeah. It, you need the experience as well. And so without the experience, you can overweight what the name is, I think. And again, I haven't named that many companies, <laughs> yeah. so I don't really know what the effect of having a good name or a bad name is, to be honest. Yeah. It seems like it means a lot at the start when you haven't done it before. And you're yeah. like, oh, it just means everything. I've got to have the best name and it's got to be catchy. People got to understand it. And- yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I really liked the name of the company Business Analysts. Like the company's just called Business Analysts. It's so blunt, isn't it? It's very restrictive if they wanted to get into, say, UX design. Totally. But if you want a product, if you want to need a business analyst. Yeah. It's very clear that you've committed to that. 
and you're not going back. You're not doing something else. You're not going to be delivery managers. You're product, uh, your business analysts. Yeah. Though Cartridge World is a great example where their current ad is all about how they do more than cartridges. Yeah. It's all your office needs. And I just hear that. I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you wind that back? Yeah. I can just imagine the conversations though. As a product, like, like product, ma- like it's, it would be a product management chat. You're trying to expand the company. <laughs> yeah, totally. Anyway, look, to, to kick off for yeah. reals. Yeah. You work in, do you say like you're a strategist or a product strategy guy? What's your moniker? I would say product consultant. Okay. Yeah, product management consultant. Mm-hmm. And... I work across the whole breadth of product management from strategy mm-hmm. to defining scope for product or features mm-hmm. and then actually delivering product. So it's slightly different to delivery, delivery, but it's quite similar yeah. in a way as well. I'm sympathetic to, or like obviously know a little bit about it. Yeah. But even when you started talking there, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if I 100% understand that. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to like sure. spend a bit of time and walk me through? Totally. What's the breadth of what you do tangibly? So to, I'll try and summarize it and then I'll go in more detail. Yeah. So it's all about figuring out what the most valuable thing to build into a product mm-hmm. or service could be a service as well. Mm-hmm. The most valuable thing to build into that product or services. And then... Out of that comes a whole range of practices around what is product strategy. How do you position yourself in markets as a, with a product with certain features? Mm-hmm. How does that win against other competing products in a market? Or how do you create a brand new market with a new product or innovation? Mm-hmm. And then with a product that's established, what is how do you understand what your customers value and how do you create frameworks or methods to filter what the highest value thing to build is? Mm -hmm. And that's with the messy side of the stakeholder management and the internal stakeholder politics, Mm -hmm. all of that together and trying to make sure that Everything comes together for the highest value being delivered in a product. Yeah, completely. Can you describe to me what you think makes a good product manager? One, one thing that I've noticed in a lot of my experiences mm-hmm. is the, polit- the politics or the people side of it is more important than the people who are executing think it should be sometimes uh-huh, as yes, well. Yeah. And that's tricky because there's two worlds. It's like the politics, the people side of it. There's, and when you're in a startup, sometimes there's an existential connection or identity to the startup as well, which you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then there's all of the political dynamics. If you've got a board that the CEO is reporting to that is getting a lot of pressure You've got customers that are on your back saying, if you don't deliver this, we're out. Or we will come on board only if you deliver this by the next date. Mm-hmm. So I think product management is trying to bridge those two worlds in, a, in an interesting way where you have to have the soft skills to be able to understand the human psychology of politics and mm-hmm. yeah, the soft skills for 
working with people to build trust to also to con to pull things up and put them on the table when it maybe is uncomfortable mm-hmm. or it's an uncomfortable yes. thing to do and and ripping the band-aid off sometimes and going hey look this is just what it is mm-hmm. and doing that in a really confident way that makes people feel like you're on their team rather than doing it in a way that makes them feel like you're against them and that can, that's such a nuance mm-hmm. because sometimes you can bring something up as bad news and if you don't do it in the right way then that can be a terrible outcome for the relationship yeah whereas if you do it in the right way then that can actually build trust in a really meaningful way i've often found in that role of like coaching or advisor or product mm. management often someone asks you a question and you're like oh it depends <laughs> Which is true because it does depend and it's complicated, (laughs) but potentially we can, I don't know, force out some opinions here. Mm -hmm. So customer demand versus owner's instinct. So do you kind of, if you had to choose one, follow what the customer says or intrinsically the product, you know, like the owner of the company knows what's right and you trust their gut. Oh, that's an interesting one. I would... Yeah, I'm going to give a consultant's answer. <laughs> ah, classic. Classic, yeah. <laughs> I know myself. <laughs> it's interesting kind of thinking through that because as a customer, you've got a very specific point of view. You've got a very specific perspective. Mm-hmm. You want a specific thing or a feature. Mm-hmm. And to you, that's valuable. But you don't have any clue as to what's involved to delivering that or owning that as a feature or a product. Mm-hmm. As a business owner... You may or may not, like not in all cases, but may or may not understand the cost of building and owning that product or feature. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's going to sound counterintuitive actually as I say it, but in a way I'd almost trust the owner's intuition over the customer mm-hmm. if I was to decide based on just those two. Yes. Yeah. yeah because the business owner is going to be thinking about what actually is going to be valuable for them as a business mm-hmm. and that's important it yeah. can't just be about oh that's valuable to the customer and that's it end of story mm-hmm. it's all but it is related so i guess the reality is if the customer is willing to pay for it and i think this is where the maybe the distinction or where it can differ yeah so the customer can talk about what they would like but it's not necessarily what they pay for mm-hmm. as well. Like, yes. Whereas the business owner knows very acutely, has a very distinct intuition around what their clients will pay for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a slight difference. Yeah, completely. I, look, I, that, that, that makes complete sense to me. I think it's interesting with taking on customers' feedback in that often customers are the worst at knowing what their actual problems are. <laughs> And can come up with some pretty crazy suggestions that if you just do what they say, it can it can really lead you down a path to failure, like totally. an, on strategic decision making. Totally, yeah. But you ignore them at your peril, right? Hundred percent, right? yeah. Do you have a sense of how to figure that out? Like, how can you tell whether a customer's like they might come to you and like, oh, could you build this feature? Yeah. How do you figure out whether that's a good idea or not? I think. So one one thing I try to do is understand what is the existing customer base business or product has. Mm -hmm. 
And then whenever something comes through as an idea is I'll try and test that idea against the existing customer base. Mm-hmm. So it could be specifically how many users will use this particular feature. Mm-hmm. If you've got that information in data, that's amazing. Like use that, reference that. Yeah. Yeah. 90% of our customers are using this feature. So you if we're making improvements to that feature or that particular customer journey, mm-hmm. we're impacting a huge portion of our existing customer base, which probably means there's huge return on that effort. Yeah. If it's a feature or piece that 1% is using, and there's a lot of features out there and products that, you know, less than 1% are using. That's yeah. the reality of it. It's the Microsoft Word. Right. Yeah. So many features in there that I'm sure someone uses, but most people don't. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the thing that's off to the side that it exists and you've looked at it and gone, what does that icon mean? But never really touched it because you've never needed it. Yeah. But if you have a team of developers and you're, you think of that as your capacity to deliver new value to customers mm-hmm. and you're focusing on something that will deliver value to 1% of customers and may or may not move the dial, Mm -hmm. or you're looking at something that's going to move the dial for 95% of customers, then that's the customer value. Mm -hmm. There's the classic product management triangle of customer business and tech Uh or solution. Mm -hmm. What's valuable to a customer? And that's one way I would do it, like is think about how many customers are using this area of the app Mm-hmm. or this feature or want this thing could be through surveys or customer interviews depending on how established you are and then what's actually going to make money is you know a new feature going to unlock a new market for you that's different from getting feedback from a customer that you already have because mm-hmm. a customer you already have doesn't necessarily want the thing you haven't built yet so there's still that element Totally, yeah. So to think that through, it's like the customer is like a customer has come to you and said that they want this ex- this feature. Yeah. So your first thought is, is this just going to help them? Yeah. Or is it going to help a significant amount of other customers that exactly. you have? Yeah. But then the other thing is, even if that was yes, you still might not build the feature if it's not going to keep any of those customers or get you any more. Exactly. Yeah. Or at least it's not necessarily going to be up high priority on the list yeah. if they're going to be... They'd use it, but they'd be just as happy Yeah, if it wasn't there, potentially. Totally, yeah. Especially when you're... And I guess the other part to it, too, is mm. it's never just one request. Yeah. You've got a million other things that are coming through mm-hmm. as ideas from customers or internally from other stakeholders. You're weighing them all up. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to go, well, is this going to move the dial on as many customers as we can i think that does tie it back to well what is the strategy as well you have that customer value or the perception of value for the customer Mm -hmm. and how many customers that's going to deliver value for yeah and then from a business perspective what is a position you want to own in market this is for, for me where strategy comes into play where you're looking at the market where do you want to be positioned but also and, and another element to the strategy side of it is what is going to create value in a perpetual way mm-hmm. so if you have three or four elements mm-hmm. 
how do they feed into each other to create value? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the more the customer uses the platform, the more valuable it is for them, which mm-hmm. means the more they use the platform, which means it's more valuable. So that's like a really basic way of thinking about that. Yeah. Perpetual value creation, mm-hmm. but you have to get the elements right. So they want to use it and they're getting value. Yes. And that's how you scale. Like that's what people talk about finding product market fit. I guess you've somewhat brought those two elements together where things start to feed on themselves and scaling doesn't feel like such a slog. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cause you're not having to individually or manually push the, you know, the, the whole thing. It's more that the, the platform that you've built or the system you've built is feeding in on itself in terms of value creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I want to come back to later is this idea that product management in a lot of ways just comes down to, it's obviously about decision-making, but actually what makes it difficult is not, should I do this one thing or not? It's actually, should I do this thing or this thing? Like it always comes down to, there are multiple there's like probably literally hundreds of things that you could be doing at any one time and you've got to pick the right one. Yeah. And that there's how you stack rank those things and whether you choose to do five things or two things or a hundred things is potentially what you're managing. But I want to come back to that. Okay. Um, All right. Because I think there's, I think there's probably some interesting stuff to talk about in there, but definitely. Yeah. Before that, I want to talk about too many features or not enough. Okay. Oh, yeah, right. As in, what would I choose? What would you choose? Oh, I think I'd go not enough. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Because I think customers always want more features. Yeah. Or you're always going to have people who want more features. Yeah. They're certainly going to ask for more features. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I've gen- generally found that the less features that a product has or a service has... Mm-hmm. If it's done well, it's it feels higher quality and it feels pointed. So I think also one element to this is having made a decision, what are you trying to achieve for a customer? Is that clear? Is it not clear? For something that's not clear, it's going to have a hell of a lot of features. You're probably not going to really understand what's going on mm-hmm. and it's not going to be a cohesive experience maybe yes i look that uh it what it strikes me is often if you sit say you're you've got a you're running a business you're building a product and you want to add feature after feature Mm -hmm. it feels like a symptom what you're saying i think is that adding more features often means that you haven't got a pretty you haven't got a solid understanding of what you're trying to deliver Mm -hmm. or what you're trying to solve for somebody and so you're just throwing stuff yeah. to help thing by thing. Yeah. Whereas if you have a clear idea about what it is that you do, you shouldn't actually need that many features. Totally, yeah. I, I, it's actually a really good point. And I think sometimes there's almost like this connection with, oh, we need more features of a thing, features of the value. Mm-hmm. The features aren't necessarily the value. It's what the feature enables the customer to do that is the value. Mm-hmm. It's the outcome that it achieves for the customer. And if you've got, a hell of a lot of things going on in your app mm-hmm. that actually might take away from the customer from being able to do what they need to actually need to do yes or want to do could you tell me more about that idea 
Oh, I guess it, it's almost like a customer, uh, user experience thing as well. If you think of a page that has 100 call to actions on it. <laughs> yeah. And they're there to do one thing. You know, they're, they're going to get distracted by everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes there are app, there are products or apps that kind of follow they follow that path of thinking that more features equals better or more value mm-hmm. and and in a way that's there's a connection for mm-hmm. sure but it's not a direct correlation mm-hmm. it's more around what is the value that that feature or the experience or that addition to that feature is delivering for the customer that matters more than just adding something new yes yeah it's what did like I like your point about what does the customer actually want? What do they want to do? Mm-hmm. And I guess they don't want to use features. They're yeah. trying to achieve some end goal. Totally. And if your feature helps them do that, then brilliant. But if totally. it doesn't help them do that, then it's... it's distracting. It's Yeah, distracting at best, probably. Yeah, at best, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So what have I got next? Strategically planning or trial and error? That's a good question. I was actually thinking about the strategic side of things before when we, we start, when we touched on strategy. Mm-hmm. One thing that I haven't talked about yet is strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. And one thing that strikes me, having worked for a lot of different companies, is the strategic advantages that companies hold that and that they use mm-hmm. and also that almost enables their existence and also what they focus on achieving as a new strategic advantage mm-hmm. so that idea of creating product that creates perpetual value mm-hmm. that's one side of that strategy view because and I think that's really important but then also with that perpetual value or even your manual efforts, what strategic advantages are you achieving? Those strategic advantages could be talent within your business. Mm-hmm. It could be hiring the best people. It could be IP. Mm-hmm. It could be creating IP within the company. It could be the data or the insights you draw from that data. Mm-hmm. It could be the experience as well. That's also IP. Then it could be marketplace advantage that Mm -hmm. you've gotten to market earlier than every other competitor in this space so that now it doesn't make sense for customers on either side of that marketplace to go to any other like uber you know uber stormed the market yeah here i was talking to the uber driver the other day coming i was he was dropping us off somewhere and he was telling us that even though diddy pays more it doesn't make sense to drive for Diddy because there's just not enough volume on there. Yes. So he makes more money on Uber, even though he gets less margin for Uber. And that's that marketplace dynamic. Mm -hmm. So they've really... So again, it's a strategic advantage. Yeah. Maybe... Could you provide like a bit of an example of these perpetual... Yeah. Motion machines. Like that's... Sure, yeah. I mean, so the fly... I should should have said this earlier, but the flywheel is that concept of perpetual value creation. Tell me what, give me an yeah. example of what that looks So this idea that, say in the market, let's use the Uber example because it's because that's probably useful. Mm-hmm. The idea that the more drivers you have on the platform, 
the more availability you have as a as a person who's catching a ride. Yeah. What do you call that? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah. The more drivers you have, the more availability there are for riders. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. So the more availability you have, the more avail- uh, the more cars you have out there for riders to potentially take that ride with. Yeah. The more riders you have, the more business you're getting for those drivers as well. Mm-hmm. And so it is a perpetual value creation cycle because as a market, and this is a marketplace dynamic, mm-hmm. which would exist for say Amazon as well. Mm-hmm. So Amazon, as they get more suppliers on board, customers go there more because they're thinking, oh, I go to Amazon to get the things that are hard to find or, and so the, and the cycle continues. So then yeah. there's more customers, more suppliers, more customers, more suppliers. And, and they have more data awesome. about what people want than anybody else All so that, they can yeah. go and find the right suppliers in it. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah, data's a big mm. point as well. Yeah, and that also applies to Uber because mm-hmm. they also have data around which areas to open up in. There's people who know Uber. They might be trying to use Uber in a city that Uber's actually not available yet. But because they have the data of people trying to do it, mm-hmm. they might decide well, this is the city that we've had the most requests where we don't have drivers and we haven't met the legal hurdles mm-hmm. just yet. But that's worth targeting because we've got this number of people actually trying to make rides there. Yeah. yeah. A bit of a question with that notice, but could you do you slash could you walk me through how you think about that when it comes to your business? Oh, yeah, good question. When it comes to my own business. Yeah. I think the the biggest thing for me is probably referrals. And I think this is probably true for all consultant consultancy work. Yeah. Is or all yeah, all consultancy work, all contract work mm-hmm. is that referrals are what really drives business. So getting a name for yourself being known for having delivered results for companies and mm-hmm. clients and then also being referred by those clients to other clients who are dealing with the same sort of challenges that need some support there. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something there around the more you achieve results for customers, the more you're referred, the more you can achieve results for customers, the more you can be referred. And there's a bit of a perpetual cycle there. 100% that is, right? You get better at the thing, you get referred. Totally. You get better at the thing, you get referred. And it, like, yeah. it's data, it's knowledge, it's IP. Completely. 100%. Which actually sparks something that I quote you all the time. <laughs> oh, and so now I'll quote you to you and then you can do a better job <laughs> of explaining what you mean. But your first customer shapes your whole business more than I'd expected it would in business. Right. And so I guess you, you start a business and the, your inclination is to like, just take as any work that you can get, you know, like yeah. I'm just trying to make the business not fail. Yeah, yeah. Totally. But that if you get some initial government clients, then your business is going to be directed at government clients forever right. and a day. Yeah. Could you talk me through a little bit about your experience of that or how you see that or Ooh, yeah, yeah. whether I've completely misquoted you or <laughs> Yeah, no, cool. Yeah, we've de- no, we've definitely spoken about that multiple times. Mm. Yeah, that. Yeah, it's so it's so true, right? Like the clients that you get early on will and can shape 
especially as you're small mm-hmm. or if you're just starting out, then the single client you have might hold so much influence over all the decisions you're making mm-hmm. because you're referring back to the client you have. It actually reminds me of something I said earlier, which was when you're thinking about the features you're building into a product, it's like you can think of the customers you already have mm-hmm. and build new value for them but you can also think about the customers you don't yet have and so if you were just interviewing the customers you have mm-hmm. and you're like all right what do you want what do you want what do you want and then thinking you're going to succeed in the market you might be missing a whole swath of marketplace because you're just not focusing on the things that those people that you don't yet have yeah, completely. And to take two things in that, that we've been talking about and merge them together, yeah. which is talk to people who are running a business and they're unhappy. Part of what's what could be a perpetual cycle is that if you've got customers, let me step back for a second. Yeah. Say that the problem that you have is that you've got customers that are overly demanding and have like low quality right? and you've got yeah. low prices. Sure. There is going to be a perpetual loop of like, 100%. because you're cheap, you get a level of client which aren't going to be valuing what you do and that's just going to churn on itself. Whereas if you could, as you say, find clients that you want rather than clients that you have, you can change your business. 100%. Oh, yeah, that's another, 100% another element. Yeah. I have multiple people in my life who are running startups (laughs) and the interesting thing is... The journey, especially when you're starting out, to accept work for maybe less money or customers who aren't valuing what you do, Mm -hmm. but what seems to be a trap because you go, I just need business. I just need to get customers through the door. Mm -hmm. And I think early days, there is an element of that that's true, like Mm -hmm. you do. You need to get people through the door. You need to, and that's useful because you can then build your services around that and you learn things and that's really important. But then, yeah, if you get a few customers who don't value what you do and that, you know, it it also takes away the opportunity cost of focusing time and effort on getting those customers or finding those customers and then delivering for those who actually will, it will mean a lot to as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this real balancing act, I think especially early on. And I think that's hard to distinguish early on as well. It's like, am I making a sacrifice here with good reason? And is it going to return value for me as, you know, somebody who wants to create value in this market or Mm -hmm. is it actually going to be a waste of time? Yeah. like, And that's where I I suspect someone like you is very helpful in that you've got a decision in which it could be justified either way. Mm. I need the money to make the company go, mm. let's take the customer or this customer is going to drive us into a direction in which it's going to be hard. <laughs> like yeah. it's, in fact, it's going to just going to make it harder for the company to succeed later on. And so you've faced with this dilemma, having someone who you can yeah. talk that through with <laughs> or be able to apply some kind of model or framework to, to this is where you get the consulting answer, right? Like you can't sit here and say, this is always the right thing to do. <laughs> no, well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what's going through my head. Cause sometimes it does make sense to take some D grade clients mm-hmm. early on because it means 
you might not have enough runs on the board to get have the referrals or to have the brands on your website to say I've delivered value for this company so mm-hmm. you early on you might not have that and so it's harder for you to get business and it might be it might be that you just don't also that you just don't know and actually no this is a huge element of it mm-hmm. I think early on you often don't know like you don't know what is a good client and what is a bad client yes yeah and you only learn that by being in the market so I think that's mm-hmm. actually a really important point because it's not easy to build. It's not easy to have that judgment up front. You have to be burnt a couple of times early on yes. to then go. Well, actually, no. That sort of client is actually a terrible client for me, and they wasted my time. I I didn't even get like a good profit on that work, mm-hmm. and so what was the point? Or it just didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And you build that sense of what's important in terms of qualifying those customers. Only through trial and error as well. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's, I just started four, like four sentences um, at once and they all ran into each other. (laughs) But if I was to pick one sentence and go with it, what I would say is when you're building a business, one of the things that distinguishes, I think, a company that's been going for a longer period of time. So you got like, you got two businesses, one that's just started out, one's three to four years old they could potentially look very similar on paper, but the fact that you have that experience as that three-year-old business is actually sometimes either undervalued or not thought of as highly as potentially it should be. 100%. Yeah. That's a strategic advantage as well. Mm. Again, that's IP, right? It's funny because you hear about these people who are overnight successes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. But the reality is some of those people have so much industry knowledge that they might be overnight successes in their business, but how long did it take them to have that experience or knowledge? And the knowledge is the strategic advantage, and that can mm-hmm. be passed on if you're willing to listen to it and you're a good learner and yeah. and all of that, but mm-hmm. not many people are, I don't think. No. Like, re- realistically, the majority of people have to learn the hard way, I think. I certainly had to learn that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, In a lot of cases. I think there's an innovator thing there, right? That if you just follow what other people say, the one side of that that's good is you'll get a lot of knowledge that's been hard earned. Yeah. But another thing is you'll always have to be directed by someone. Well, true. Yeah. Whereas you've got to make an element of your own mistakes to be like, oh, actually, it turns out this can be done differently. Totally. But it's hard and it takes an amount of hubris and it also takes an amount of failure. <laughs> yeah, totally. It takes that, that willingness to have a go and fail. Yes. So it's something that I think we've both experienced successfully and not so successfully potentially. But I also think for a lot of small businesses who work in creative fields, there is this mantra or a good idea, which is that you're running an agency or a service or essentially a time and materials business. Mm-hmm. And so then the wisdom is you want to turn that into a product business in some variety. Like it might be building a platform or it might just be productizing your IP. Yeah. What is your advice right, yeah, to stick the landing on that pivot? Because it's, I feel like I've seen maybe a thousand TikToks or Instagrams or YouTube videos where people are like, 
productizing, easy, just do this, you'll make a million dollars and you'll be sweet. And then I've also downloaded a million ebooks that all suck. So, like, how do you make that transition? Oh, that's a good question. I think I haven't personally achieved that yet. Yes. But you certainly worked with people on that journey. 100%. Yeah. Yes. I, and this is where I was going to go next. Is Sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> not, not at all, but you're right. And it's For me, I think about this whole journey as a connecting the dots kind of journey. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I do personally is trying to understand and de-risk and trial in a way that's relatively low risk Mm -hmm. and learn and then continue to repeat that until I've got enough IP that I've got the strategic advantage that it actually just works and then I've got the the thing working Uh uh-huh and and I think and and that kind of comes from my product management thinking as well which is Mm -hmm. like what is well, one is what, what is the strategic advantage? How do you de-risk achieving that strategic advantage? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you use what you have? I think that's a, actually a really important thing as well. Mm-hmm. So don't try and jump the gap too much between what you have and what you don't just don't yet have. But use what you do have. If you mm-hmm. don't appreciate what you have and use it, then you're swinging from nothing. Totally, and I think people undervalue what they have. Totally, often you're just like yeah. they've got something that feels. What's the thing? Um, Untapped. No, like when you feel like you're imposter syndrome. Oh, right. So you've got this IP that's actually quite good, but it seems obvious to you. Yeah. And so you make these claims that are bigger or you get, essentially just get lost in what your product could be when you've got a, you've probably got value. Yeah. Sitting there. I think it's the raw talent as well. Mm -hmm. Again, I think we've sold some of these ideas that, you hit the road and then it's game on. Mm-hmm. But the reality is a lot of people have such raw talent and so much to offer, so much value to offer, but they do still need to hone it. Mm-hmm. And you can only do that by... by some people, some people have the ability to just go all in and they're so bold that they live in this bold space and can create value from that. And I've seen that with certain people and that's mm-hmm. and that's amazing not always and then sometimes like that boldness can just fit, seem like it's flitting from one thing to another as well yes yeah. <laughs> but I think if you use that raw talent and build on that and probably try not to jump so far so quickly but jump enough you have to try and push yourself out of the comfort zone enough to go I'm stretching to the next thing mm-hmm. but not in a way that's betting the farm on it mm-hmm. and to learn the lesson. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's the real, that's the thing that's so valuable is what's the next lesson you need to learn. Uh-huh. Yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's in a space that's really uncomfortable for you. Actually almost always uh-huh. because yes. if you knew it, yeah. you just, you'd know it already and that'd be okay. You'd be good with it. And business is, it's all the elements. It's everything. It's, you know, <laughs> you have to, be able to think like 10 different ways all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. What that's triggered in me is this idea of risk and that often it gets glorified, the idea that you should just take big risk. But actually, 
I think what you're saying, and I hadn't thought about it this way before, but actually what you're looking for is not risk so much as uncomfort, discomfort. Discomfort, yeah. In that like you could take a big stupid risk, put a lot of money on something that could go one way or the other. But actually what's the good risk is finding something that is strategically important to the business or to you that you don't know a lot about and then be able to move in that direction. Like, you know, you walk into a room where the lights are off. That's risky. Totally. But a great growth opportunity. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that process, like if I was working for a, a client, mm-hmm. I would be thinking about that too. Is like, what don't we know here? What can we shine a light on and do it in a relatively, like what's what do we have at our disposal? Because mm-hmm. often things that are at or available to be used aren't being used or tapped the way they could be. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you value that, you're like, okay, here's value. Let's reference this. Here's good information that can help us achieve the next strategic advantage. But you do it in a way that you're trying to utilize what you have mm-hmm. and also not doing it in a way that, yeah, is over. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to say. I think there's, if you don't already have a skill Mm-hmm. or IP or no, yeah, knowledge or IP or a product, mm-hmm. you need to start somewhere. So you've got to start with what you've got. Mm-hmm. If you don't have anything, you just got to start talking to people. Yeah. You got to start collecting information. You got to pull it, start pulling it together mm-hmm. and then that can build over time and you can build insights and then that can feed into the next thing. Yes. But start, I like that. But there's some essence or some seed that you need to have first that you're going to build on top of. It's funny, I talked to a class of like entrepreneurs a little while ago or like two weeks ago or something. And the idea was like, where do you get ideas from? (laughs) And I do feel like that was the missing piece, which is there is lots of ways to come up with ideas, but you do need some seed or like a thing first. I forget exactly how you put it, but I prefer how you said it to how I'm saying it. But that's you got to have something there first. Mm To be able to then build on or whatever, as opposed to just be like, oh, I could start a business. What should I start a business for about? Sure. Yeah, totally. It's almost like as an individual, what are you passionate about? What yeah. are your, you're trying to start a business in making clothes when you the last thing you do in your life is creating clothes yeah like you've yeah. ever you know you put a button yeah. back on a shirt i'm not interested yeah. in it but yeah. you're like oh but it's gonna make money so i'm gonna do it Completely, you're probably yeah. not gonna make it work yeah and that's the problem with like most side hustles that you see i don't care about that thing but <laughs> people are like oh if you just buy a bunch of vending machines you'll make a bunch of money but unless you care about that or i have some passion about it yeah yeah you'll probably fail okay so two more things i want to yeah. talk about and well, then can, we'll I, can i connect one thing yeah first. of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm thinking about the startup that is really just the startup early days mm-hmm. compared to the platforms and also are you asking about or talking about the idea of productizing mm-hmm. something yeah i think there's a there is a there is a gap or a process to get to being able to productize something yes mm-hmm. and part of it is experience and ip i believe like you need enough People, you need to have had enough experience with a multiple number of people or businesses to then see the patterns, to then understand that is 
valuable mm-hmm. and it can be built in a sort of platform kind of way. And I think also one thing that strikes me too is habit habits die hard and people, if they've got a solution to it in a way already, they need to see that whatever that new thing is, is going to provide 10 times the value before they're going to switch to yeah. it. So that's why I think you've got a lot of companies who are probably creating something valuable, but it's not 10 times more valuable than what they're doing right now. And so the, the cost to switch from what they're doing to that and the habit and the, the fact that they're probably already tied in, like switching from Android to iPhone, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, you're so tied into the environment. You're, all your information is... The, the cost to switch is huge. Completely. And I think when you're like building a business or you've got a business there is like a good element of that and a bad element, which is that you've got a business that's being successful. There are other things out there that are 5% better than you. Your customers aren't necessarily switching over to that right now. And so the good element is that you have some time. The bad element is that you shouldn't read your success or the fact that your customers aren't necessarily switching over to that other thing as the fact that you're on the right path. Um, or that it's final or that it's for a long time. Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's, there's a maturity so, where like it'll be fine, but then one day they like it will get 11% better or 11 times better and then they'll... Yeah. You're done. It's 100%, yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about is you work with a lot of startups mm-hmm. or you work startups, scale-ups, businesses where I guess they've got some traction mm-hmm. and they've got to that phase of growth where there are... This is true for all companies, but I think particularly true with this kind of company, whereas there is a lot of things that they should be doing all at once. Mm -hmm. Lots of top priorities that if you took any one individually, you'd be like, of course, we should be doing this thing right now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of small business owners find themselves in that space. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Could you provide or give some strategies for dealing with that? Like, how do you start to work like how do you work with your clients to break that down and be like here's what we should be doing right now mm. that's a great question it's funny that movie everything all at once <laughs> hey, what is it everything Every, everything everywhere all at once although i've not yeah. seen it but I, like, okay it's um, don't so, no spoilers so that movie everything yeah. everywhere all at once for me it was interesting all that was going through my mind and this is funny because i kind of oftentimes I find this where my mind is pulling me back to business and product management. (laughs) All I was thinking was one of the personal lessons I've learned over the last two or three years is that business development and marketing require a different type of thinking than product development and so product management and product development. Mm -hmm. And when you're in marketing or business development you need to be doing a lot if you think of marketing as being the process of getting so much information out there to all these potential clients and having 12 touch points before they convert Mm -hmm. or for business development to be talking to who god knows how many hot leads but Mm -hmm. you don't know which one's going to convert so you've got to talk to all of them there is this different type of thinking in those spaces where it you're thinking about all of the things. You can't mm. not. It's not about choosing one client. You don't just choose one 
potential client. Yes. Well, you don't just go marketing and you just go stand out in front of one house and go, hey, buy this <laughs> yeah. product. They'll have one house. It's yes. like, that's just yeah. stupid. Yeah. You've got to go broad. You've got to do as much as you can. You've got to mix it up. You've got to keep going. You've got to almost spray as much as you can. Yes. Obviously, with quality in with some business um, marketing strategies. But Yeah. And then business development is similar. And then with product management, it's almost like you can't just do everything. But then from a business owner's point of view, who's doing marketing and BD and product development all themselves, they've got to swap between doing marketing, BD, product development. And it's very different thinking. So product development, you can't just be doing 10 things all at once. You can try, but generally that's not a good approach because... Mm -hmm you'll probably not deliver anything. Whereas if you focus on the highest value thing, get that out first, Uh you're probably going to be in a better position. I really love that point. I've not thought about it like that before, but it's very true. Mm. And that's why the struggle is real when you're trying to play all of the roles. Yeah. Because you're right in that it's not that sales and marketing aren't necessarily strategic endeavors, but the idea is that you need to go with some breadth to win. I remember I had like a sales job back at university and he was like, the job is you've got a deck of cards and you're just like, look at a card, looking for aces. You're just like, going through, going through. And if you look at one card and it's not an ace, if you spend five minutes on that, it's not going to turn into an ace. But you've got to go and like eventually you'll find an ace and like, that's what sales is. Yeah. But it's not like that in product management. And so bridging those, like two vital things to business success take two very different mindsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And difficult. So how do you bridge? Tell me, give me some yeah. strategies for bridging that gap. What's well, really interesting too, uh, I'm going to add one little thing and then, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll talk about that. But what's also interesting is what you, and I think this kind of comes down to personality types and experience as well, is when you're, when you've been successful in a business development role or a marketing role where your approach is to go broad and go wide and to be talking to a huge number of people and doing a crazy number of things all at once, that's what success is to you. So that, and then if you, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. if being more uh, of a developer or a product manager style person where you've got to make decisions around doing one thing to deliver the one thing mm-hmm. when that's been your success then that kind of it re- gets reinforced in your thinking and the way you will break down problems yes and look it links back to what we were saying before about you need to build up that experience totally that's where success comes from building experience and then acting on that knowledge so 100%. then being able to pivot is hard yeah 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 so you've got these different domains and if you tried to apply that thinking the marketing thinking or business development thinking to the product development thinking and this is often what happens is mm-hmm. you'll find founders or startups startup ceos that are trying to apply the same sort of thinking that they would to marketing and BD and being very successful there. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to apply that to product development as well, saying we need to do these 10 things right now all at once. And the development teams looking at them going, oh, okay, cool, yeah, great. We'll just get onto that. <laughs> yeah. Not realistically being able to deliver on it because it doesn't make sense because they don't have the context mm-hmm. at the complex problems that they need to solve 
they can't do them at the same time. They need to choose one, go deep on that. Obviously, there's the design element to all this as well that has to tie it together. Yeah. But yeah, that thinking is different. Totally. And understanding that you've moved into a different domain. 100%, yeah. Um, is a skill in and of itself to be able to... Yeah, completely. Sure. Oh, we've, we've changed our environment now. i got to think differently. It yeah. feels counterintuitive. Yeah. I think the thing that bridges it, mm-hmm. so this is so that product management thinking mm-hmm. as well, is there's you have all your customers or potential customers. If you can understand the numbers behind that, like which customers care about which things, mm-hmm. and you can also break down what's going to win in terms of a commercial position for the company as well, and you can think about that on scale then you can also then decide what is the most important thing to build right now. Mm -hmm. And so it does bridge the two worlds in that sense as well. Yes. I'm trying to think of an analogy that would bring that all together and coming up dry. (laughs) But yes, that sounds right. It's bridging it in that you've, you've got a bunch of knowledge from your broad experience through marketing and sales that needs to be funneled or used in an intelligent way to then pick What's the one bet that we're going to make on the other side? But it's not ignoring or somehow one being better than the other. Yeah, okay. And one thing to think about could be that as a young CEO, you've got five customers in front of you. Four of them want the one thing or relatively similar thing. And then the fifth one also wants something different. And... Do you choose the thing that the four customers want? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. But the CEO might say, well, that's also really important for our lifeblood because we're in an existential crisis. We need yeah. to have as many customers as we can get to keep going, to have the runway. Yeah. And then, yeah, you'd probably still focus on the four, but this, the young CEO might still say you need to do both. Yes. Isn't discerning between the four and the five because if everyone's yelling at you all at once... Right. The five might sound, you know, like the the fifth one might be the loudest. Yeah, totally. Or the last conversation the CEO had. (laughs) Point, being able to determine which is the most important becomes muddy. Whereas if you've got the data behind five want this, one want this. It seems obvious in the abstract, but in the hustle and bustle of running a business, it becomes muddy very quickly. Exactly, yeah. And also, as you're running quickly and you're moving from one thing to another which can which happens Mm -hmm. very often in startups it what you can also lose is that sense of what is recency bias here what is the most recent thing that's come up is it more important just because it's come up now or is it just come up now and you still need to assess everything else that's there yeah and because there might be a hell of a lot of other stuff that's in the backlog or ready to be developed that's still actually way more important yeah. but just because the customer's yelling at you now saying hey we really need this doesn't mean you should pivot to focusing on that completely it's, it's potentially the urgent but not necessarily the important totally yeah okay that was the Impact Podcast. thanks for listening you can find the show notes for this episode on theimpactpositivecompany.com and you can find Dan at lateralproducts.com We'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which we are recording and gathering today. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners joining us.
We recognise the deep connection they have with this land, their cultural heritage, and the significance of their ongoing role in caring for and preserving this land for generations to come.